But you can turn to, the, to Genesis 5, kind of the end of chapter 5. I want to talk this morning mostly about uh, two men, about Enoch and about Noah, as we look at leaving a legacy of righteousness or, or a legacy of walking with God. Uh, but in between that is sandwiched in the beginning of chapter 6, and I want to deal with that. I want to address the beginning of chapter 6 as many people... Uh, have struggles and concerns and wonder what Genesis 6 is really all about. I want to try to make that as simple for you as I can and give you as much as I possibly know, uh, but at the same time letting you know that by no means do I know exhaustively what the beginning of chapter 6 completely entails. I can only share with you what the rest of God's Word says about it. So we're going to go to the Lord in prayer. We'll start in verse 21 of chapter 5, and we'll go through verse, I think, 8 probably of, uh, of Genesis 6. So we'll pray and we'll get started. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be in your house this morning. We thank you so much for our mothers. We just pray you wrap your loving arms around them, that you give them comfort and peace. As many mothers, Lord, are struggling, um, maybe they're seeing their kids go through things, and Lord, they just need answers and peace. Lord, others maybe are, are struggling to even become a mother. And yet others are mothers and have never had children. And so we thank you for this high calling of what it means to be a mother. And it's much more than just giving birth to a child. But it's the raising and the loving and the nurturing of a child. So we thank you for all those who've played a part and continue to play a part in raising children and nurturing children and loving on our kids. And Lord, we pray that as we read your word today, that you speak to our hearts and our minds, that you give us practical use of what your word says so that as we leave this place, we not only leave with a greater knowledge, but we leave better equipped to live a life of serving you, of walking with God. And we ask it in the precious, the holy, the powerful, the beautiful name of Jesus Christ, your Son and our Savior. Amen. So we'll just begin. I want to read and then I just, there's a lot to say about this and, and you could preach on any particular one of these for a long time. But just want to start in verse 21. Now what's been happening is we get the line in chapter 5, the descendants of Adam through his son Seth. Right, so the third son of Adam, Seth, after Cain kills Abel, these are the descendants. And, uh, and so uh, Enoch is Adam's great, 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 great grandson. All right, so, so seven generations away, the seventh generation. And this is what the Word of God says about Enoch. Very interesting. I don't know what you know about Enoch, but he is an awesome character with very little said about him. The Bible says Enoch was 65 years old when he fathered Methuselah. You may think, uh, well, that's what makes Enoch famous, right? That his son was Methuselah, the, the oldest man recorded in Scripture. But Methuselah rather should be known as the son of Enoch rather than Enoch being known as the father of Methuselah. When he was 65, when he fathered Methuselah, and after he fathered Methuselah, Enoch walked with God. Now, this is more than just knowing God or believing God or, or praying or talking to God or listening to God. Literally, this, this term, he's intimate with God. He is walking intimately with God. It's a very similar term used to describe what God did with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day when God would come down and walk with them in the garden. 
And so Enoch has a close relationship with God. Now listen, this is important because we know what's to come. We know the judgment of God is coming. We know man in his heart has become so wicked that God can almost no longer look on the race of mankind. And yet here Enoch is who walks with God. It even tells us that he walked with God after he fathered Methuselah. And so, I don't know what he did before, those 65 years before, but, but certainly there was a radical change in the life of Enoch when Methuselah was born. Other scriptures in the New Testament tell us by faith, Enoch preached judgment, that people better repent. Enoch was really like the first Elijah, the first John the Baptist. He was preaching judgment, repent, because judgment is at hand, repent, because judgment is coming. And much like the others, Elijah and John the Baptist, few listened. In fact, only his family, only those, and not all of his family, because it says not only did he father Methuselah, he walked with God 300 years, fathered other sons and daughters. Can I just point out, it's Mother's Day, we're going to celebrate Mother's and Father's Day together. But Enoch was a father, not with just one son, but we're told Enoch had a son, then he started walking with God, then he fathered other children. And I just tell you that you can be a family man and still walk with God. That you have time both to take care of your family, to love on your family, to raise your children, to invest in their life, and still be considered a man who walks with God or a woman who walks with God. This is important that God mentions this in his scripture, that Moses, writing through the inspiration of the gospel, says, Enoch lived 65 years, then he fathered Methuselah, then he walked with God. And then he had other children over the next 300 years of walking with God. Isaac, sit down. See, you even have time to preach and be a father. As tough as that is sometimes. He lived 300 years, he fathered other sons and daughters. So Enoch's life lasted 365 years. This is a beautiful line right here in all of Scripture. Enoch walked with God, then he was not there. I love this passage of Scripture. If there's no other reason to walk with God, then maybe this, right? He walked with God 300 years, and then he was not there. 300 years is not a long time in this, in this period, right? In fact, he got robbed of about 600 years according to how long his descendants are living. But he's walked with God 300 years. He's not there. And Scripture tells us he's not there because God took him. There's only been one other guy in Scripture this happens to, right? Elijah. Elijah is walking with God and, and preaching against the, uh, the priest of Baal and God takes him one day. He was there and then he was no more because God took him. A lot to know about Enoch and a lot to look at. But let's get through the scripture verses and then we'll talk about Enoch. Verse 25, Methuselah was 187 years old when he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived 782 years after he fathered Lamech. And he fathered other sons and daughters. So Methuselah's life lasted 969 years. Then he died. Lamech was 182 years old when he fathered a son and he named him Noah, saying, this one will bring us relief from the agony, agonizing labor of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. Lamech lived 595 years after he fathered Noah and Noah, uh, excuse me, he fathered other sons and daughters. So Lamech's life lasted 
777 years, then he died. Noah was 500 years old. Noah is like the ultimate bachelor in Scripture. Noah waits 500 years, then he fathers his children, Shem, Ham, Japheth. Verse 6, after we look at this line, there's a point in time where God looks upon mankind. It says, when mankind began to multiply on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of mankind were beautiful, and they took uh, any they chose as wives for themselves. And the Lord said, my spirit will not remain with mankind forever because they are corrupt. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth both in those days and afterward when the sons of God came to the daughters of mankind who bore children to them. They were the powerful men of old, the famous men. When the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. He was deeply grieved. Then the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I created off the face of the earth together with the animals, creatures that crawl, and birds of the sky. For I regret that I made them. And this is a line we can all be thankful for. Noah, however, found favor with the Lord. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to read it. And now we pray, Lord, that you would teach us through and by your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I just have a slide. I want to show you this slide. And it's going to be hard for you to see. I already know. Uh, but it, yeah, look how many people that is. Uh, so what this chart is, I'll just share it with you since you can't really probably see it very good from your seats. Is it's a chart of when Adam is born and Seth and Enosh and Kenan and Mahalalel and Jared and Enoch and Methuselah. You with me? All the way through to, to Noah and Shem and when the flood takes place. Now, we count backwards, but I just decided I'm going to start with zero and let Adam be year zero, the year that Adam was born. And so the Bible tells us Adam was 130 when he had his son. And then, uh, so Adam is uh, born at year zero. He dies uh, at year 930. His son was born at 130. And he lives 800 years. Excuse me, Seth, uh, 235, and then dies in 1042. Next one, born 325, and dies 1140. Kenan, 395, dies in 1225. Mahalel, born 460, dies in the year 1200. I put these numbers down so that you can see almost all, the, almost all of the descendants of Adam are alive almost all the way up to the flood. In fact, all the way to about two generations, all of them are alive. The one who goes first is Enoch. Enoch is the first of the descendants of Adam to be taken away by God, right? He doesn't die, but God takes him away. And you can see there, there at the very end, those lines seem to almost mirror each other. Uh, by the way, the red line, when they're born, the blue line, when they die. I'd be more than happy to send you a PowerPoint so you can look at it on your own screen of your own computer uh, rather than straining your eyes here. It's just amazing, though, um, when you look back, how, that, how that the time that the Bible gives is a pretty consistent timeline. And when you look at how things unfold, 
It all unfolds again. There, there are no mistakes here, right? So there's, nobody's just throwing out years like, oh, he lived 777 years. And then it, it all just fits together perfectly to come to the point of where the flood is going to take place. Now, Methuselah, there's a couple ways that you can um, interpret his name. And I'm not going to go deep into that. Uh, but it is a, it's a compound word, this name is. It's a combination. So some people interpret the first half of Methuselah's name to be man. Uh, others, but it's very, very close and can also be pronounced in the very same uh, word as death. And so when you look at Methuselah, the beginning of his name could have meant man or it could mean death. When you look at the end of the word, it could be by the spear or judgment. But either way you look at Methuselah's name, it literally means judgment is coming. It's a harbinger of God's judgment. Uh, right, which makes sense because God called Enoch to preach re repentance. Enoch's walking with God for 300 years preaching to the people. You become evil in every way in your heart. Repent or God's going to bring judgment. He even, even names his son in such a way that it's easy for us to look at the name and to very easily see how it can mean when he dies it comes. And literally if you look at the timeline... Methuselah dies the very same year of the flood, according to the Bible's timeline. So when would the flood take place? 1,696 years after Adam was created. According to Scripture, 1,696 years. Enoch died five years before the flood. Methuselah dies the year of the flood. But I want to talk to you about this legacy of Enoch. The first thing I want to share with you is this. Um, I want you to be encouraged by this. That God never overlooks. Or there is not one single righteous person that God does not see. God doesn't overlook righteousness. There's not a single righteous man or woman... That goes unnoticed by God. We can go unnoticed by the world. We can go unnoticed by those closest to us. But we never go unnoticed by God. Know this, that when you live a life that's pleasing to God, when you walk with God, you find favor with God. God looks upon you with favor. Noah found favor. Why? Because Noah was a righteous man. God looked to and fro on the earth and said, I'll destroy all of mankind, all the creatures. I'll just start everything over again. And he looks, there's a righteous man. I take notice of the righteous. I'll spare him. And through him, I will spare mankind. No one who walks with God, no one who lives a righteous life. Now, I'm not saying anybody is righteous. I'm not saying anyone is good in and of themselves. I'm saying that if you walk with God, if you do everything you can to live a life that's pleasing to God, God takes notice. And even though you may never get accolades on this side of eternity, you can know that you'll be represented when you stand before God in heaven. He takes notice. You may never win awards. You may never be rich. By the world's standards. But God takes notice. Every day. Walk in a way that pleases God. Everything that you do. Do as though you're doing it for the Lord. 
Not just when people are watching. That's self-righteous people. You with me? I'm only self-righteous if I do what's right when people are looking at me. God takes notice of the self-righteous too, but it's not so that one day he might say to them, well done, good and faithful servant. It would be like the Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs full of dead man's bones. Do what's right because it's right, not because it's easy and not because others are looking. Is this how you test your heart? Is this how you test your heart? This is how you should test your walk with God. It should not be, how do I compare to other people? You ever get that answer? Well, I tell you what, I won't ever go to church. Why? I know people go to church. I live better than they do now. Well, they might be going to hell too. Don't judge your life by the standards of other people. Look at your own heart. Look at your own life. Don't judge your life by what other people say about you. Because people will give you accolades sometimes. Sometimes as a pastor, you get kind of this uh, false praise sometimes. We're people who really don't know you whatsoever. You know, listen to one sermon and then they just tell you how great you are and you're not. Don't judge yourself by what other people say if they're praising you or if they're putting you down. Your worth does not come from other people. It's how you can look a person right in the eye and they can tell you everything they think about you, good or bad, and you can go about your day just as good as you were before. Because what other people say about you does not determine who you are. What determines who you are is what God says about you. So when you look at your heart, when you look into the deep recesses of who you are, you need to ask yourself this, not what do others think of me, not what do I think of myself, but what does God see when God looks at me? Now here's the good news, you ready? The good news is if you have been born again, if you've been washed in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've been redeemed, then I can tell you when you stand before Him in judgment, judgment, He will see Christ. Christ is your substitute. So we take great comfort in that because we know that we can never be perfect like Christ. So we need a substitute. But friends, we ought to live every single day doing our very best to imitate Christ in the decisions we make. In every decision, whether it be financial decisions or marital relationship decisions or where I'm going to college decisions, what job I'm going to take decisions, what am I going to do in this time and the culture that we're living in decisions. If I see a neighbor in need, am I going to use the fact that we're not supposed to get within six feet of somebody to not meet a need or am I going to meet a need of someone who's in desperate need? Who am I when no one's looking? You want to know what? That's a scary thought sometimes. There are times when I have to really check myself. I pray that, that I'm not the only one. I mean, it's, this is nothing to brag about, but it's also something that we should all experience. Like There are times when I really think hard. It could be scary who I am when nobody else is around. 
And, and I ask God repeatedly, all, all the time, God, help me to be the person you want me to be when nobody's here. Help me to be the person you want me to be when there's no one looking over my shoulder, when there's no one making judgments on me. But when it's just me, God, when it's just me here, help me to be the person you desire me to be then. I want to tell you something. It's a whole lot harder to be the person God desires you to be by yourself than when you're in a crowd of people. A lot of people tell you the difference, right? They'll say, no, you get the wrong. Listen, it's ten times easier for me to stand up and act like a preacher when there's people around than when it's me, myself, and I. And as a believer in Christ, it is ten times easier for you to come into the church house and act like good church people than when it's just you by yourself when no one else is around. Enoch walked with God when nobody was around. He walked with God. Noah walked with God. When it was just Noah, he was the person God desired him to be. And Noah found favor with God, just like his, his grandfather, right? Great-grandfather, Enoch. There's not a single righteous person that goes unnoticed by God. I want to tell you that there are times when I think to myself, does anybody even care about my ministry? You ever feel this way? That, come on, you do other things. All right, whatever it is you do, whatever it is God's called you to, there are times when you feel like, boy, does anybody even notice? Does anybody even care? Is anybody even listening? Right, that's not a judgment on you. It's an insecurity of me. There are times when I ask myself, am I making any difference whatsoever? God, I don't know if I am. You with me? Like, God, sometimes we have 20 new families show up, and then three weeks later we got 40 that go somewhere else. What am I doing wrong? Or, God, am I doing anything wrong? Is, is it something we're doing as a church? How do we stem the tide where people come and say, and this is all I know, everybody that comes in is not meant to stay. That, that's all I know. That's a fact. But there are a lot of lost people out there that need to know Jesus Christ and need to have a place to come where people will love them and to help them to grow in Christ. That's what we're supposed to be about. Equipping each other so that we can be ministers outside of these church walls, outside the doors of the church when we go into the community. Are we making a difference there? Because if we're not making a difference there, then we're not the church. We're not the church. If all we do is gather together and enjoy one another and God on Sunday, then we're not the church. And the coronavirus is a tough time to be the church. When we want to, to help other people, when we want to be there for people, and we can't be. I'll tell you, it was tough. The, so, uh, so Friday, I started running a fever. And I had felt bad for three days. And uh, so I went to the hospital. Just so you know, I went to the hospital. Don't anybody start putting your mask on. All right. I go to the hospital, and they're checking everything. It turns out I have a sinus infection. But for about an hour, they left me in there by myself. And this is all they said. We will come back and tell you the way we're going to treat you. And I thought, I got coronavirus. That's what I thought. I mean, really, I was like, man, I'm running a fever. They won't tell me what they're going to do. It's just me in the room because nobody else can go with me. 
So for, I, I'm texting Sonia. Sonia's texting me. She's like, how you feel? And I'm like, nervous. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, this has finally caught up to me. It's a sinus infection. That's the world in which we live right now. Right? I, I mean, I really wish somebody could have been in the room with me for that one hour where it was just kind of up in the air that I don't know if I'm going to get tested for this thing. I don't know if they're going to, uh, yeah, I don't know because I got something. <laughs> I didn't go in there with nothing. I got something. I thank the Lord. Right? Anybody ever been thankful for sinus infection? <laughs> right here, me. Thank you, Jesus. Um, it's tough right now to be the church. We've got to find ways to be the church. From uh, Man, I want to tell you, so like uh, Sunday nights and Wednesday nights, I do my Bible study on Facebook Live, and I really encourage people to write comments and things, and, and I've enjoyed doing that, and it's a new way to reach out to, to different people, and different people are watching it, and that's fun to interact. But uh, there's some things that this ought to be teaching us so that even after our doors are fully open and everybody's back, that we're able to reach new people for Christ. If, if nothing else, I think this coronavirus is going to teach us how to reach people we've never reached before with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I just encourage you, boy, just think you can lead a small group from your home on Facebook with people that would never come to your home. I think that's, I see that in the future where people are reaching out and there's 20 people doing a Bible study either through a Zoom meeting or Microsoft Teams or Facebook Live. And these are people that won't come to your house and they won't come to church, but they don't mind sitting in their house at a computer where they can communicate with you and talk back and forth. And it may be the tool that God uses to bring great revival in our nation. I pray it is. But who are we when there's no one around? I can't get away from that question. There's two things I think we need to always constantly ask ourselves, and, and that's one of them. God, who am I when nobody's around me? What is it that I do when nobody's around? What, what is, what is the, where do I struggle when nobody's around so that I can try to set up defenses to make sure that this doesn't happen, that I'm walking with you? And the second is, my standard is not others, my standard is Christ. Here's what that means. I'm constantly falling short of the standard that I'm supposed to live up to. That brings humility and repentance. When I'm, when I'm living to try to be like my Savior, it brings the humility to understand, boy, who could ever be Christ? No one but Christ. And yet repentance, God forgive me because today I just fell short. I just fell short of who you desire me to be. And there's two things God desires, right? Humility and repentance in his people. And that's the second thing. Listen, even when we look at this story, we're about to get to the flood. God's desire is not the destruction of men. Like, God's not just sitting up there pointing his finger angrily at people like, I'm about to flood you all. What he desires is repentance. Enoch preached it for 300 years. Noah, is, for 500 years, has been walking with God, and now for 100 years, he's been building an ark. It's kind of like God saying, what else do I have to do? I think Josh and Derek both told me a story two different times, so I want to make sure that I cite both sources. 
right? Don't want to uh, be charged of like verbal plagiarism. But they were telling me about a guy who was uh, a flood came and he, he stranded on top of his house and he's waiting and a boat comes by, uh, a couple rescuers, and they say, hey, get in the boat. And he says, no, I'm praying my God's going to send me help. Not too long later, the Coast Guard comes by, and I'm not sure that's who it was in their story, but in my story, the Coast Guard comes next. And the Coast Guard says, hey, get in the boat. And the guy says, no, I'm praying for help. God's going to send me away. God's going to save me. A third boat comes by, the same answer. I'm waiting on God. God's going to do a miracle. He dies, and he stands before God, and he says, God, why didn't you save me? And God says, I sent three different boats. Right? What else do you want me to do? How else can I save you? If you don't open your eyes and ears to see what it is I'm doing, you're going to miss it. God's not interested in the destruction of men. Here's what God decrees in chapter 6. If you look at... Uh, at verse uh, 3. And the Lord said, My spirit will not remain with man forever because they are corrupt. Their days will be 120 years. This does not mean hey, they're going to live to be 120 years old. This means in 120 years, I'm destroying them. God has, God has left a window open in Genesis chapter 6. Uh, man, you have 120 years. And if you can't get it right between now and then, I have no other choice. I want you to understand something. We look at creative order and how God created things. And this is one thing God did not create. God did not create the Nephilim. These uh, demonized men at the very least. You with me? So, so I did a study because there's one thing that everybody argues about and nobody can agree on. And that is the Bene Elohim, which is uh, the sons of God. Right? I'm not getting into that discussion this morning. I'll just tell you this, that when the sons of God is used in other places, uh, sometimes it's simply used to represent the fallen angels. Everywhere else in Scripture, it represents the fallen angels, right? We call them demons today. And so the sons of God, the Bene Elohim, I believe, based on modern or, or traditional Jewish writings, they translate Bene Elohim as fallen angels. In all Jewish writing, traditional Jewish writing, when they see the term Bene Elohim, it, it, it is translated, not God's sons, but it's translated fallen angels. Nephilim is equally translated, when you read the word Nephilim in Ezekiel, rather than, than it being translated Nephilim, it is translated fallen. And so the, the Nephilim are the fallen ones. The Bene Elohim, the sons of God, are the fallen angels. That's my belief, not based on just reading it once and saying, oh, the sons of God must be angels, but based on reading all the traditional Jewish writings and interpretations, how it's interpreted elsewhere throughout Scripture, it seems that the Nephilim are the fallen ones. Sometimes Nephilim is translated giants. It's because these fallen ones are a giant breed. God did not intend for this in creation. Remember, God created things in a certain order. He created man to have dominion over the earth. And Satan, every sense of being of creation, has trying to thwart the plan of God. He's trying to stop God's plan in every way. Even when you look at uh, prophecy to come, he even imitates God's throne in the end times. By this trinity, so to speak, this... Uh, this demonized trinity that we'll see kind of take, take power in the book of Revelations. But since the beginning, Satan has trying to destroy what it is God created. And this is one way Satan schemes to change what God created. He decides he will create 
a race of men. This will be a different type race. These people completely given over to darkness. God looks upon that and says, I can't let this go. I can't let this go. How can this be? I created man in my image, in our image. And now, Satan has used my very creation, the daughters of women, and in order to bring about their own separate race, this has to end. And so both the judgment of man and the judgment of Satan is the flood. But we even, we even read here that the Nephilim, even after the flood, we see a resurgence of them in Enoch. When the children of Israel are going into Canaan land, and they go into Canaan land, you remember when they sent spies in, and you'll find the, the direct, in Numbers 13, you can read all about this. They go into Canaan land, remember they come back and they're like, they are giants there. The Nephilim are there. Why do the Canaanites have to be destroyed? Why do the descendants of Enoch have to be destroyed? Because they're no longer simply men creating the image of God. Now they are Nephilim created in the image of demonized men. Just like before the flood, we see them after the flood. And this tells us that they even will, will reign after the flood. We see them before the deluge. We see them after. Satan doesn't give up that easy. When you go into the land, destroy them all. Do not leave any alive. Why? Because God's creation is to represent God. That's a lot of information. I don't know if you took that all in. Phone calls. Um, you can call me next week. I'll try to get back to you. And then we see Lastly, that walking with God, it brings benefits to future generations. Let me look at Enoch. Enoch, 65 years old, has a son, changes his life, rocks his world, right? He's got to. He's a first-time father, and the Bible makes mention that after he has a son, then he starts walking with God. Many of you know, you remember when you became a father, and it changed your life. Now, you weren't just responsible for you. You actually had somebody else's life in your hands. And Enoch begins to walk with God. Not just knowing God. Not just talking about God. Not just showing up at a church service if there were churches back in the day, which there weren't. Not just going through the motions. Y'all with me? Remember I said, who are you when you're by yourself, when you're all, when you're all alone? Who are you? That's, that's how you judge yourself. If you really want to know who you are with other people around, ask your wife. She can give you a pretty good indication. Wives, don't ask your husbands. We know better than telling you the truth. You're perfect. You are, you are a saint. Every wife in here, you're good, 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 fine Christian ladies. Ask your wife if you want to know who you really are. And I think she'll be honest with you. Most wives, right? They'll let you know right quick, well, you're not perfect. That's the only, yeah, it's good to get an amen every once in a while. Walking with God brings benefits, man. It brings benefits not just to us. Man, there's nothing like walking with God. Make sure you hear me say this. We don't walk with God because we want future benefits. We walk with God because He's God. We don't walk with God for what we might get from God. 
We walk with God because He's God. He deserves our worship, whether He does anything for us or not. He, he's God. He is alone God, and He alone deserves our worship and our praise and everything we have to give. So when life stinks, we bring glory to God. When life is great, we give glory to God. In all things, we glorify God. As a result of that, we leave a godly legacy to those who will come after us. My children will be left a godly legacy. I pray that my kids will love the Lord Jesus Christ because they saw their parents love the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't you pray that? Your kids... If you're older, now you begin, you're, you're looking forward to grandkids or have grandkids, and your prayer is, God, I, I want my grandkids to love Christ, and I want them to know what it looks like to love Christ when they look at me. Mom and Dad, I, I, they look at you, and the way you love your wife, and wife, the way you love your husband, is a direct picture of Christ and His church, and so they will come to either know what it means to love Christ or not by the way they see their mom and dad treat one another. So when you mistreat one another, husband and wife, wife and husband, then understand you're not only... Painting a picture to your children of a dysfunctional family, but you're painting a picture of a dysfunctional God, and God is not dysfunctional. When we walk with God, we leave a legacy of godliness. For me, this is all I want, right? Like, I'm not looking for riches. Like, I, I don't care about that. I do want to be able to pay the bills, but I don't care about riches, I want to leave my children a godly legacy, not a monetary legacy. doesn't mean I don't want to take care of my family. I do. I do everything I can to make sure that if something happens to me, they're taken care of. You should do the same. That's only being responsible. But I want my kids to have a godly legacy that's left behind. I believe you do too. So if walking for God, we understand these three things. Number one, God does not miss a godly person. When God looks over all creation, He recognizes, He sees, He takes notice of those who are walking with Him, for Him, in Him, through Him. So this morning, can you honestly say that as God looks to and fro, right, over the earth, that when He sees you, he sees someone who's striving to walk with him. Secondly, do you know this about your God? That your God desires repentance much more than destruction. Don't you know that God would love that Genesis chapter 6 would read, and Noah built an ark, but the entire region came to trust in God. And they took the ark and they made it into a sanctuary. We see something similar when, when God is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. 
And old Abraham says, well, what if I can just find this many righteous people? Would you destroy the city for that? No, I won't even destroy it for that. And then Abraham, you know, just seeing how far it can go. What if I find this many guys? I won't destroy them. You find people in that city who trust me and believe in me, I won't destroy the whole city for the sake of ten. If God could have found others who would have served him and worshipped him, there would not have been destruction of all people, of all creatures that crawled upon the ground. Because God does not delight in destruction. But God delights in repentance. I'm going to tell you, God loves to see one of His children who come to terms with the fact that they've walked away from God, they haven't been living the way they should, and they fall down on their face in repentance before God. God loves to see His children turn back toward Him. Don't you love to see your kids when they begin to walk a path that you see as a dangerous path for them to walk and they turn away from that path? Isn't it something that you delight in? Or to see a grandchild who's headed for destruction who turns around? God delights the same way in us. He doesn't want to see our destruction. He wants to see things work for our good. Listen, here's the application. I'll close with this. We've said this all along in Genesis from the sin of Adam and Eve to the sin of Cain and his murder of Abel. It, it applies here. Sin will always lead to destruction if there is no repentance. Make sure you hear that. You don't get away with any sin. God doesn't forget about it unless you repent of it. Now listen, Scripture is very clear. If you're a child of God and you sin and you repent of your sin, God's faithful and just to forgive you of that sin. But when you continue in your rebellion against God and you will not repent, then just know this, destruction follows. You say, what, what kind of destruction? I don't know. Maybe it's the loss of your family. Maybe you lose your family over the mistakes that you're living in. Maybe you lose your livelihood. Maybe you lose all hope. And maybe you even lose your life because of the activities you're involved in. Number two, always be humble and always be contrite in heart. Always humble yourself before God. Isaiah 66, 2 says, all these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be. God says, I've created everything is, declares the Lord. But this is to the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. God desires humility and a contrite spirit. What's God say? I will look on those. This is the one to whom I see. Walk with God, God takes notice. He sees you, why? Because He looks on those who are humble and contrite in spirit. And number three, listen. In humility, let's walk with God. Like Enoch, like Noah. Striving to serve Him as we imitate Jesus Christ our Lord. In 3 John, isn't that something? I just thought, I need to quote 3 John for something sometime in my ministry. And finally, I found a reason to quote 3 John, verse 11. Dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God.
You see, that verse described the entire world apart from Enoch's family. Culminating in Noah being spared from the flood. So real simple. Are you walking with God? Are you seeking God? When you're all by yourself and nobody else is around, are you the person you really want to be for God? Because that's the guy, that's the, that's the guy and gal you need to check. Not the one you see in public. Not the one you see at church or Sunday school. But the person you are by yourself. Does that person please God? And if the truth is something like this, I'm not sure, I don't know, or flat out, no, it doesn't. Then know this, all God seeks is repentance. A contrite and humble heart. Give it to God and He'll help you to become the person He wants you to be even when you're all by yourself. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for Your Word. We pray that You speak to our hearts and minds now. Lord, we're so thankful for our mothers and we, get, we just have gratitude for all they do and all they sacrifice each and every day for their children, their grandchildren, nieces, nephews, foster kids, adopted children. Lord, moms come in all shapes and forms. And I pray today would be a wonderful day for them. Bless their day. And Lord, I pray we would understand that we're living in a world that's so full of darkness and sin. And the only light in this world is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's imperative that we, the church, get it right. And so I thank you for this study that we've been able to begin in the book of Genesis on the consequences of sin. And I thank you for the day for an encouragement for the legacy we might leave behind if we walked with God. And so I pray, dear God, that in my own heart, you would help me become the man you want me to be, the, the husband you desire me to be, the father you want me to be when nobody else is looking and when I'm all by myself. And I pray that every member of this church would become the person you desire them to be even when they're all by themselves when nobody's looking but you dear God if we do that if we become those people then we'll make a difference in the world around us when we're surrounded by a crowd when we're at home when we're at school when we're at the marketplace use us to reach a lost dark hurting world in Christ's name we pray Amen.